Hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, I speak with film directors Keone Waxman and Max McCabe Locos. That's all coming up on Endeavors. Well, hello again, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. I have my first interview with a potential job in Scotland, uh, as I mentioned on before. I will be relocating across the pond as of August 1st. Um, Of course, if things come together before then, I will move sooner. But plan is to move August 1st. Hopefully, it looks like we'll be able to shoot the rest of my web series, Coming Out Aces, uh, and sort of the middle half of July in Toronto for a week. Uh, We're just doing some rewrites, doing some paring down, uh, and it looks like we'll be able to shoot the rest of it for under 10k. So that's exciting. Uh, Talking with my friend about producing her amazing script. And I've also started doing freelance, like copywriting, PSAs, newsletters, that type of thing. I don't know why I started going off into this tangent, but I guess, you know, I I like to keep... I like to keep the listeners updated, um... Not that there's necessarily that many every single time, but, you know. Uh, And like I previously talked about, I think this show will become something else over the next little while as I transition into British life. I'm looking at focusing more on, like, the longer-form interviews, especially ones that kind of, not not cross-platform, but touch on a lot of different things. You know, I had my interview with Alistair Bonnet a couple months ago and Eleanor Risa, and thinking of maybe launching into something called uh, you know, the intersection or intersect or something like that. Uh, I have an interview coming up in a couple of weeks with former Major League umpire Dale Scott, who's got a new memoir about uh, being a Major League umpire and also being an openly gay uh, Major League umpire and openly gay sports official. Really excited to to talk with Dale. Um, as a Toronto sports fan, he has a few big moments um, that were part of Toronto's history, especially over the last six, seven years. Uh, ALDS 2015 against Texas. His very last game as an umpire was in 2017 against the Jays when he suffered a concussion. So yeah, there's a, there'll be a lot to talk with with him about. Also currently trying to write a script as well it does feel though finally that life is starting to get back to normal um i've been in starbucks i've been in a drugstore recently um they have removed a lot of the plexiglass covering that protects that protect um customers from the cashiers and 
vice versa. And, you know, some people wear masks, but it's not necessarily as a common sight as it once was. You know, and I, I people will still wear masks, and, and that's fine. Um, but it's good that we are getting back to normal. And I'm excited to... see where things go over the next few months. But the films that are talked about today are anything but normal. There is a new thriller film out called The Ravine, which stars Eric Dane, Terry Polo, and Peter Vassinelli. And it's actually inspired by uh, a true event that happened to the writer, uh, Robert Pascucci. He actually, it's based on a, a book that he wrote and him and his wife, Kelly, uh, adapted it along with um, the director, Keone Waxman, the writer-director. Uh and it's basically about the, these these two families that uh, you know have, are sort of dealing with with the aftermath of this of this crime that uh, was committed by a member of one of them, and it's about you know how well do we really know our friends and our families and our neighbors. What lengths would we go to to protect the ones that we love and adore and and care about? The film deals with a lot of unanswered questions, a lot of conflicting emotions and and thoughts and feelings and it's I was I was pleasantly surprised by the film uh it is called The Ravine and it stars Eric Dane Terry Polo and Peter Fascinelli uh, and it was released into theaters on May the 6th and I had a chance to speak with writer-director Keone Waxman about the film. Hey, Keone, how are you doing today? Good, how are yourself? Doing well, doing well. Um, so you've got a, you've got a new film out, uh, The Ravine, and I know this is based on a novel uh, by Robert Pascucci. As a filmmaker... What's the challenge for you in taking somebody else's work and making it your own? Well, it, it's a uh, it's it's a big challenge, obviously, but uh, primarily in this case, not just because of the you know taking a book and turning it into a film, taking a format and changing it, but um, uh, Robert uh, wrote a book that was based on his life, based on the incident that you know uh, loosely based on an incident that happened to him. So the main characters in the book are kind of, you know, stand-ins for himself, for Robert and his wife, Kelly. So it was very challenging in that regard, because obviously there's a sensitivity to the realities, sensitivity to the, you know, to the people and the events. But at the same time, you know, the author of the book was, is, is a character in the movie. And the author of the book was the producer of the film. So that was very challenging, but it was also, I don't want to paint that as a negative. That was actually a very positive. It was very helpful and very, um, you know, very emotional, and inspiring to have them on set and the crew and the cast loved having them there and it really became part of, you know, part of the production process, but actually adapting the novel, you know, it takes a while. You have to figure out what stays and what goes and you have to change the structure, and, you know, and the point of view and all of that. So that was, that was taxing unto itself, but I think we had a, you know, I think we had a pretty good working relationship. Given his involvement in the film, uh, how, much was he involved in deciding who was going to play essentially his character? 
Oh, well, you know, they were, again, uh, Robert and Kelly, they were there from beginning to end, soup to nuts. So um, every person we, you know, we talked to about any character in the film, let alone Mitch, <laughs> who is his character that Eric Dane plays, um, you know, they they wanted to meet him. They wanted to um, see if he understood, you know, what was going on with it. So it was not so much of a shadowing, but it was more like... Um, you know, it was more like a, a, uh, a an understanding of I want to make sure that these people understand, you know, why I did it. Talking about the actors understanding, you know, uh, the story and the characters in the story. So again, there was a there was a lot of um, interaction, but I, I think it was all uh, for the positive because I think someone like Eric, someone like Terry, even someone like uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, Danny, you know, Peter playing Danny, you're you're dealing with a lot of questions, and I think that having Robert there and having Kelly there provided help provide answers to questions that you know the actors were looking for when they're making their own you know their own choices. Uh, the cast also has has some young actors, of course, play, playing the children. And, and I'm curious, you know, as a storyteller, when you have a you know when you have sort of dark subject matter, how do you work with with kids in that regard, do you do you lay everything out in the open? Do you do you shield them from certain parts? What are those conversations like? Well, that's a that's a really good question because you know we had kids, uh, young kids playing their children, and we also had younger uh, actors playing the you know the leads, you know uh, when they were kids. So we had different generations of it. Um, the the first thing that happens is that, you know, these kids come and read and you're like, you know, he's a good actor. He understands this. He looks like the parents, this or that, but they're reading the sides. So they're not really reading the entire story. So, you know, they don't, or the script, so they don't know exactly what the, you know, how it fits. Um, once they have the part and they have the whole script, you know, the, the younger ones, the parents are the ones who, you know, who I talk to first and, and make sure that they're, you know, what they're okay, their kids knowing and, and being involved with. But as you get into production, most everybody's pretty much already read the script, maybe met Bob and Kelly, um, you know, maybe spoken to, you know, had many conversations with us regarding what it's all about. Um, so it's, it's a per case, you know, um, kind of thing. But at the same time, the younger ones, I remember talking to them. And they're saying, you know, I already read the book. My mom, my mom explained everything to me, and they had opinions. And so they were pros in the sense, in the sense that they were removed from the drama. But when we started talking about doing the scenes, and they had to find the emotion, that's where it gets a little tricky. And I think that might be what your question is: is that that's when you don't say, okay, everybody's dead, <laughs> you know? But you definitely explain to them, you know, that they're in a post um, situation of, you know, a loss. And then working the scenes with someone like Terry Polo, who, you know, most of her scenes are she's breaking down because she's trying to, to process this stuff as well. You know, they're, they're talking to an adult who is in it and they believe. And so a lot of it becomes less about being delicate and more about just understanding the scenario at the time. Uh, you know, you mentioned Terry and you mentioned earlier about, you know, changing the point of view and, and, and changing the structure and... You know, a lot of the film there's there's flashbacks and flashbacks within flashbacks. Um, how do you go about doing the 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 art of the reveal? I guess I could say in a film like this. Well, you know that that's a, another good question because a film like this where it's a thriller, but it's not a whodunit, right? The, we reveal who did it right from the beginning, so the the reveal is the why done it. And that's why we ended up starting going into this structure that was very sort of much like the novel, where you're kind of going back into what people, experiences the various characters had at younger ages and interactions together, because that's where the plot is, right? The plot is of the why would someone do this to their family um, starts when they're young and there's a disconnect on a lot of levels. So, um, you know, I, I think that the, the editorial structure, the script structure, um, kind of comes from that. So in terms of when do you do the, the reveal, a lot of it for this one was the juxtapos juxtaposition between the young and the old, and the older, I should say, right? So, you know, young Danny and older Danny, you, you see a big difference, but you also see the kernels of where he's going to go. And it's just a suggestion, but it, again, it's the it's more of the, of the you know, uh, the, not just the conflict, but it's also just the juxtaposition of these two sequences that people go, oh, now I get it. Because again, we're trying to reveal why. You know, we already we already told them who, 
there are uh, a number of scenes that are, you know, and the whole movie is very dialogue heavy. And there's a couple of scenes that are essentially monologues. You know, uh, Billy as Kevin has one. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, Tony has one. How do you do? How do you approach that as a director? Are you are you able to shoot that all in one sequence, or do you or do you break it up for for the actor's sake? You know, it's, it's, it's funny you ask that, ask that because that's what I asked them first off. You know, um, when, you know, uh, let's take uh, you know um, Billy's, you know, as Kevin's monologue. Um, we are in a prison. We are shooting in a real prison all day. Um, you know, it's not easy going in a prison because you can't run cables and keep doors open and have people lingering. Just thought, you know, I mean, you're 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 in lockup. Um, so you move slow. And his scene was the last scene of the day. We already shot the boys the other side of it. And his close-up was the last thing of the day, and he did it in two takes. The first take, he just said, let me roll. The first take was a little angry. And the second the second take, we just talked about it. So let's be, dial it back a little bit where it's more emotional. And, you know, we ended up using, obviously, a combination of the two. But he did that in two takes, which I, and he's a fantastic actor, so I thought that he did a great job. Um, compare that to uh, Terry when she's doing her eulogy in the church which was, you know, probably double the length of, of Billy's monologue. And there's a big monologue with her, but of course we have, you know, the audience, we have each actor, you know, not the audience, but, you know, all the parishioners. You have each character you have to cover and you have to cover from all, you know, all over. So we're in the church all day. She, Carrie did that, that speech all day, maybe 30, 40 times, and broke down every time. Um, her point of view was just keep doing it. Let me just keep rolling on it. And then even when I when we did a we did coverage on Leslie Uggams for her reaction shots, Terry finally done for the day. You know, wearing her robe from taking her, her costume off, sat opposite the camera and did the speech again in its entirety so that Leslie could react to it. So again, this depends on the actor. You know, um, Billy blasted out in two takes, and I'm sure he would have won another one, but he was good. And Terry just kept the intensity level up and did the entire day. That is, uh, that's quite the, quite the performance. Um, you know, a a lot of this, I guess, film is, is about for forgiveness, you know, and about how we react emotionally to things. Have you thought about what your reaction would be if you were put in this situation? Um, and again, another good question. I thought I thought a lot about it. I thought a lot about it when I was reading the book, not you know, writing the script, shooting the film, cutting the film in particular, right? Because you get to these moments where you're like, I just want to make him out to be a villain. I do a lot of uh, genre movies, a lot of action, and in a- action films, you know, it's pretty cut and dry. You know, you, you piss off the the hero, he you know, he he goes out and he and he kills somebody <laughs> or rescues the. The lady or the daughter or the son or whatever and then everybody's happy right i mean it, it's pretty much you know a equals b in this though based on real incidents based on you know real reactions it's more about the collateral damage and i think it's a big gray area because i think depending upon the circumstance how would you react you know um and i think that's really what we're trying to show again of this is just that it, it, it's less about forgiving and more about not still being angry, if that makes sense. Because for this for, for this movie, it was all about how do you move on? So what would I have done? I don't know. But I do know this. Uh, Kelly and Robert, um, they, they experienced this. They wrote a novel. They produced a movie. I think that whole process is them figuring out how to move on. So maybe it doesn't end. So I don't know what I would do, but I thought about it quite a bit. What did what is working on this project? Has it taught you anything about forgiveness? I mean, even though you said it's it's more about moving on than than forgiving per se, um, but you know, ha, has it made you change your mind at all in that regard? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think what it taught me the most is it's really really hard, right? You can say I forgive you. But you may still feel something, right? It's hard to actually, that's why I say it's more like moving on, because you can sit, tell someone, I forgive you, but you're still pissed at them, right? Or you still treat them different, or you still avoid the conflict, or you still avoid the, the place that it happened. Um, so to forgive someone is, a, is, is easier to say than to do, easier said than done. 
said than done. Um, but to really forgive somebody, you know, again, uh, an action movie has catharsis, right? It's cathartic to watch the bad guy fall off a cliff or blow up. You don't really have cathartic forgiveness uh, in real life. You know, and it taught me that it's harder, it's harder, you know, forgiveness is, is, is not just a concept for drama. Uh, you know, given given the the length that that, that we see um, of of the speeches in the film, I'm curious as it as it as to whether they were all said as written or whether the you allow the actors to not necessarily improv but maybe add a line here or there. Um, I always let actors stay off the line. You know, um, you know uh, the the script. Um, and this was a little different, obviously, because it's based on a book, and so you have a lot of dialogue that's character-specific. But I always let them sort of find it, because, it, you know, uh, the intention is always, to me, is always more important than the dialogue. Now, again, plot-heavy, you need someone to say, the body was found over there at 6 o'clock, and there was, you know, it's very much like the game Clue, right? Uh, you need to follow, somebody has to say those, otherwise nobody knows, the audience doesn't know. But with something like this, um, again, going back to Terry as an example, the eulogy was word for word. But then the scene where she's in the closet and she, she goes in there just to try to figure out what's going on and she breaks down, you know, that was Terry saying, let me just find it. So, you know, it depends on the circumstance and it depends on the movie. Um, but And it depends on the scene. But a lot of times I let them try to find it and then if we need to go back and say, don't forget that, you know, I have the key <laughs> or whatever it is, um, we'll do another take and kind of, you know, put that back in. Uh, and finally, quickly, as we wrap up, it, was there a, a favorite moment you had from shooting? Um, you know, I, I got to say, because I was asked this before, and I just loved shooting this film with, with this crew, with this cast in New Orleans. It was a very um, pleasant, and I do a lot of films where, you know, you're in the, you're, you know, you're, you're in the, the cold, the heat. You're in these precarious places where it's exhilarating, it's fun, but, you know, you're like, God, I'm so glad I got through the, through the day. With this film, even though it was heavy, you know, uh, on set, it was really a joy to work with everybody and be there. So, you know, for me, the, you know, there wasn't anything too that didn't stand out. But at the same time, there wasn't anything that was, uh, I mean, I would love the experience, you know, all in all. Well, the film is The Ravine, uh, and it is in theaters and on demand as of today, May the 6th. Kilney Waxman, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thanks a lot. I appreciate talking to you. All right. Have a good day. Cheers. You too. That was my conversation with writer-director Keone Waxman. His new film, The Ravine, is out now. Well, from True Life, inspired by True Life, we move to a film that is truly surreal, borders on the bizarre. Max McCabe-Locos has long been an actor in the Canadian indie scene. His list of credits include Twist, Lars and the Real Girl, Incredible Hulk, Toronto Stories, Max Payne, Being Erica, Happy Town, The Listener, Killjoys, Murdoch Mysteries, The Girlfriend Experience, Twelve Monkeys, Schitt's Creek, Disappearance at Clifton Hill, Chaos Walking, Station Eleven, and two of my favorite films, Mouth to Mouth and The Tracy Fragments. He recently has transitioned into writing and directing, and he's done a number of short films, including Paris 1919, The Husband, Ape Saddam and Midnight Confession. His first feature is a wonderfully bizarre commentary on society, reality TV called Stanleyville, which follows a woman who abandons her career when she gets the chance to compete in a bizarre and dangerously flawed contest. The prize? A brand new habanero orange compact 
SUV. Each of the five uh, contestants, you know, I guess fill a different stereotype. And of course, the referee in the competition is played by the remarkable Julian Richings. It is a lovely film, both in the writing and the aesthetic. You know, very minimalistic, but very specific in terms of the costumes and the production design and, and the art. Uh, Max McCabe Locos is the director, and he co wrote the script with Rob Benvy. Uh, the film came out on May the 6th, and I had a chance to speak with uh, Max not too long ago. This is me and Max McCabe Locos. Maxwell McCabe Locos. Hello. Good morning. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, Dan? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So you got this very great, very interesting new film, uh, Stanleyville. Um, there's there's a lot going on in in this film. Where did this idea of sort of a reality show satire come to you? Um, where did it, how did it, how did it, uh, it just, you know, there's no, it just kind of, it was like, oh, let's just make up a story. It's just fiction. It's, just, it's really, I mean, it's like, I wish I had a more interesting answer. And I was like, I could tell you a lie. You know, I could tell you that, that somebody came up to me in a McDonald's in Parkdale when I was eight years old and told me that I was special and I was going to be invited to this contest. And then. You know, she took me back to her basement and stuffed fucking broomsticks up my ass or something. But that's not what happened. It, it it's just fiction that me and Rob were looking to write a short, like a like a low budget feature. And uh, you know, so we were kind of sort of reversed engineered something like that. It, uh, you know, like something something that that had a propulsion. You know. It wasn't just going to be like a Beckettian talkie thing, even though some people say Beckett. I don't like Beckett. I, I, I resent Beckett references. But um, it, it, instead of it just being like a like a, you know, a bunch of people discussing existentialism, we, we, we kind of thought, well, let's give it something that can propel it. Therefore, the contest, therefore, the Rams, it's got all these built in gags like competition, conflict. You know, it's not that it, it's 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 pretty much just like a paint by numbers one room movie you know you you spend a lot of your life as an actor and you've done a lot of sort of small indie films as well how how has that helped you with with your filmmaking career be, being having that experience as an actor um i mean i guess it gave me the the sense of however misguided confidence to to do to direct movies you know i mean uh, you know you know being on set a lot is you absorb some information that way it wasn't i wasn't so green in the in terms of somebody that had worked in the film industry uh as far as advantages to being a director i think that i i mean like Everybody's a, you know, everybody thinks that, that, that they know best I, when I'm on set as an actor. Sometimes I think, well, that's a, I wouldn't direct it like that. I wouldn't, you know, that's, that's not how you direct an actor. I don't think there's one way to do it. I don't think that, like, I have any special insight on that, but I guess I have seen many different ways of doing things that sometimes directors phone it in, sometimes they care, sometimes they're involved with the actors, sometimes they stay in Video Village and just, you know they're just like a disembodied voice and i don't think there's a i certainly don't think that there's like in terms of like the if the movie works in the end there's one way to do it i don't think anybody would say that but i know that there's the way that i like to do it and that i like to be directed and like the productions that i've worked on where i thought well that seems like 
given all of the ways that you could direct a scene, that's the way that has worked best for me. So I tried to apply that. That said, I don't think that I even did the right job given some of the material that we were working on. I mean, there were certainly times when I was overwhelmed and I was, I was, uh, you know, trying to motivate the, uh, the actors and I was doing it in a way that was probably like doing the, the very opposite of motivating them. It was just frustrating, but it was, uh, I don't know. I mean, like, I think that any, I think that there's like, also, you know, acting, like reading a lot of scripts, it sounds pretty facile, but like you read scripts. I read a lot of scripts. I'm not in the, every script that I read, but I get a script and I read it. If it's an audition, sometimes I read the whole script and you read scripts and you sort of start to see how, how those kinds of, how like a 90 minute story is, is built. And, and, um, I guess the short answer is just experience. You know, it gave me some experience to 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 feel qualified to do something. Whether or not I was qualified is up for debate, but that's that's how I arrived there. All the characters strike me as you know they're stereotypes, but they're but they're very specific. You know, they've all got different accents, they've all got different styles of dress. How much of that was already in this script, and and how much of that? came out based on who you cast was it like a was it a sort of a, a blind casting process in that sense um i no, they're pretty the the stereotypes were pretty much written in like you know we were obviously going for some pretty broad archetypes um i guess um we cast with that in mind but then something like like the Andrew Frisbee Jr. character, this the guy who plays him, Christian Sertiello, he that was written. I would say that it, when it was written, it was more like an American version, a kind of it was like Donald Trump Jr. You know, some sort of fucking capitalist fail son that was just like a blathering idiot who nothing he said was true. And then Christian, when we cast Christian, we ended up casting you know like an Englishman to do it and he a lot of the like the dialogue did change and like the sort of the there was a more British sensibility put on it I mean and and you know like the kind of whether it is apparent or not is is, is, is irrelevant but like the backstory for that character was a little bit more like it was different than the kind of a quote-unquote American backstory feels on feels on backstory it was more um so yeah that changed uh the Bofield character was always uh, an hispanic man um and a bodybuilder type guy um yeah i guess i guess the casting did change did now that you mention it i sort of it's, it's sort of hard to tell remember because it's been like those phases have been applied to to that script for so long in my memory like longer than the it took to write the script, you know, and, but when I think of it, it, it is true that they sort of did change a little bit after casting. Uh, and the other character we should mention is, of course, Homunculus, played by uh, Julian Richings. And I love this character. He is such a, he has a very odd way of speaking. And, you know, having been around Julian, he's, he's great at those types of characters and, and that method of speaking. But, you know, how much of that was his affectation and, and how much of that was sort of directed in the script that he's sort of very staccato when he when he delivers a line? Uh, yeah, I mean, his delivery was all him. Uh, the I think it was clear in the script that there was that this guy kind of had half a brain like it was he's sort of some sort of kind of an automaton and he was like getting radio signals from Mars or whatever. But you don't really. But as far as how it was delivered with in that deadpan staccato it was that's 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 totally just julian's that was his take on it i mean the dialogue is pretty weird and it's full of malapropisms and it seems sometimes improvised and sometimes he's like reading off some script um like it was so um the the character on the page was so what was like not idiosyncratic but it was so like it was so specific that anything that anybody could do with it, I was, I was happy to, to roll with because yeah, it was already so weird on the page. Was, you know, and Ju Julian is a bit of an icon, especially in 
Canadian indie cinema, and he's sort of great at playing these oddball characters. Was he so? Was he someone you went to from the get-go, saying, "Hey, let's get Julian"? Um, I had spoken to him about it, uh, and never really pulled the trigger on it until it seemed like it was feasible. And then I think maybe, maybe you know me and some of the other people that worked in the movie talked about other people and um but we not yeah it, it was like there was no real discussion of anybody else doing it if, if julian was down which he was then it was there was it didn't seem like we could get anybody that was more appropriate or better i mean he's good in so many ways he's a he's a great character actor he's a recognizable face he has his own sort of built-in cult sort of following so yeah there was no there was no this there was no um didn't take a lot of deliberation if he when he seemed interested just just on that note about him being a recognizable face you, you know there's all there's always a debate among studios and filmmakers saying oh you know let's get a name or can you get a name for this you know having somebody in your film that that's known at least to the audiences in its country of origin how much does that help you from the business side of things in in terms of getting distribution and and sort of um of that aspect because because you have this sort of quote-unquote name attached to your project i mean that's a good question i i don't i think that people like it gives it some credibility, but that, that the, the name, name thing, like the name recognition and like the hierarchy of celebrity is so vast now that I, to be honest, I, I, I actually don't think it makes like a huge difference. I think that it's, it's like, this is not a movie. I mean, Julian certainly brings his own people will watch a movie just because Julian Richings is in it. That's a fact. That's a demonstrable fact. I, I, I know that because I can see what people say about this movie. They're like, I checked this out because Julian Richings is in it. You know, that's, that's good. But I think that it's, it's not, doesn't necessarily come down to like a financial decision. It's not like, I mean, you go to like telefilm and, and you say like, I mean, in this case, we didn't, it wasn't done. It wasn't financed that in this like typical telefilm model, but you know, you, if you go to telefilm and say like, oh, I've got Julian Richings, they might be like, all right, well, you know, I think in their heads, they're like, well, every movie in Canada has one Canadian name in it. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, I don't think they're going to be like, oh, it's not like, I don't think it really tilts the scales. I think it more just gives it credibility. And I'm not diminishing the the, the popularity or the prowess of Julian Richings. He's definitely like, a, a get that would you know it's a goofy term but that's what he that's what he was for this film but um and it's and i yeah i think for the distributors it's kind of like you know it's a good reference it's a name check that they can they can say instead of just coming at you from like complete obscurity it gives you some kind of reference um but not at the levels where you're financing based on cast that's not what was happening for this one I wanted to ask you about the uh, Habanero Orange Sports Utility Vehicle. Um, where did that device come from? Was was that just sort of the sort of oddest string together of words you could kind of come up with? Uh, well, the originally in in the script it was a it was a it was an aubergine purple Toyota Rav Four and uh, Rav. We couldn't get permission to actually say Toyota Rav Four. And then so it changed to an aubergine purple compact sport utility vehicle. And then we couldn't find a purple car. So I I begged uh, the producer Haley to find like the, you know, an, an atypical color of a car that still qualified as like hideous. And um, she found an orange one. And then very quickly we changed the script to habanero orange instead of aubergine purple. <laughs> you know, what is... What does it say about all these reality shows that we see, you know, whether they're variety or competition, that 
sometimes it's the re the reward doesn't equal the what what you actually have to do in those things. Huh. Uh. Well, I I would say that that's not just a, a thing that's on a reality show or, or a, I mean, I think the reason those reality shows and variety shows are popular is because that's how people feel in their lives. I mean, every, I mean, I don't want to sound like a, such a Debbie Downer, but it's like every transaction I make feels like it, it's, I'm, I'm, it's not worth what I put up for it. You know, like every, it, it, I, I think it's a big, I think there's a lot of, ripoffs i think that you're being asked on a daily basis to give up part of your privacy or to give up kind of your autonomy for for what like for for some kind of promise of of uh, of of transcendence in the in the in the form of a, a fucking set of headphones or something like it's i i really <laughs> i mean i i i i think that that exists in in small ways that's what the that's what this like cartoonish movie is it's just like an exploded reality of the the disappointment of i mean i, I it sounds it sounds kind of college first year college student but it's like the you know the disappointment of the of the capitalist promise of of uh of having some kind of transcendent experience through shopping and and it's not even not even shopping but just like you know like and i'm not not i'm not a spiritual person like i'm i don't that stuff is equally as disappointing to me but um uh yeah i think it's something that everybody can relate to it's just it's a modern disappointment the what i noticed about the film was that the the set was very specific the characters kind of their 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 costumes kind of match their their personality or their trait um how much of that was was you and in the script and how much did you work with like courtney or your your pd or, or or your costume designer to create to create this almost minimalistic style feel um yeah well i mean the the costume designer courtney mitchell uh she's she that's her i mean a couple of the i think george the guy who plays bowfill had this idea that he wanted to wear you know like khaki khaki pants and a golf shirt kind of thing. And the color schemes were very, you know, there's a lot of primary colors and there's like a block sort of color aesthetic. Um, the, uh, the production design, I worked with my brother on it, but you know, it's stuff that we had a lot of, I, I, you know, I stole a lot of aesthetic from, from movies that I'd liked. I, I guess I was watching a lot of, I mean, I've always kind of liked Aki Kurosmaki movies and that sort of um, the richness of the colors in his movies and um, and the stuff that like the Rainer Werner Fassbinder movies. And I guess who's that like Michael Balthius Ballhouse, but like the DP on those movies who ended up shooting like for Scorsese and stuff that I think maybe I'm wrong. That's what my memory tells me. But the uh, there was there was scenes in there are designs in that in stanleyville that are directly ripped off from fox and his friends like that movie was a huge inspiration um and the characters i think that one of the good things about like if like, one of the you know identifiable things about courtney mitchell's design of the costumes is that the characters were not subtle and they didn't need to be references for any kind of modern um you know like you didn't need to say like well this guy's into slipknot so he's gonna wear a slipknot t-shirt it was just kind of like this guy wants to look like a rich guy he wants to look baller so he's got some like a cheap version of those clothes like who wears like a short sleeve dress shirt under their jacket you know it was like a cheap tacky version of like a off-the-shelf suit you know with a stupid like what do they call it? like a hanky in the, the pocket square and stuff yeah and and um and so because they were kind of blunt objects, the characters, because they were so archetypal and easy, easy to identify, then the, then the, then the, then the costumes did, were able to be sort of uh, blunt or, you know, unsubtle. <clears throat> also, the other thing I noticed was the, um, the music. It, it kind of goes back, like I noticed right at the, 
you know, the beginning credits, it's kind of like crazy and all over the place. And then it's kind of little, little bits uh, here and there. On the whole, as a filmmaker, how much control do you like to have over the those other aspects of, of filmmaking that often take place in post? And, and how much do you leave to your team? Um, well, I mean, I'm not... I would add some kind of ideas for references of music, but um, the composer, Joseph Shabison, he, I mean, me, the score is like a huge help it, it, because, you know, when the movie is just like this ugly skeleton, then none of the beats land. And, and then you're like, well, I've always got score. And then score does a bunch of the heavy lifting at the end. And you're like, oh, yeah, fuck, thank God there was somebody that knew what they were doing here who can actually like, you know, put lipstick on this pig. And Joseph took his own I told him basically like what I wanted you know we agreed that it was going to be like a limited like the the sort of um spare compositions like as far as instrumentation like it, it was it was it matched the aesthetic of the movie where it was stripped down you know it's a one room thing with you know minimal cast he was he tried to keep it at you know I don't know half a dozen instruments or something but it basically it's just percussion vibraphone and a flute um so it was he but he was just he just got it like that was actually very easy it wasn't but i do like to have control over things i like to be involved but then you know the nature of a movie like this is that you uh you have to relinquish you have to relinquish control uh because a lot of the times the people that are working on it are doing you a huge favor and you have to trust that they that their decisions are you know what they choose that's part of the reason they're doing the job and i was lucky that they they were not hacks you know like everybody that worked on it did a good job so um but i think given like different circumstances i may have experimented more and maybe come back around to what was originally proposed but you know there was an there was an urgency and a, and there were limitations that um, sort of helped the decisions be made in the end homunculus talks about um, the competition helping to achieve spiritual enlightenment. Um, mm. For you, I know you mentioned you're not really spiritual in that sense, but what is enlightenment to you? Oh, what I mean, that enlightenment to me is like a hard day of work and then like a nice dinner and then a glass of wine and like good sleep. And I, 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 I don't think it gets any, I, I, I'm pretty, I, I, I mean, I just don't, I don't, I don't really see like a big difference between some kind of packaged enlightenment from, you know, like a fucking crystal that you like rub on your forehead or something, or, or from some kind of like self-help guru on Instagram that's like, tells you you're born of plebeians or something or not plebeians what's the alien palladian palladians uh i don't think i don't see the difference between that and somebody that's telling you that this car is going to make your life better i think it's exactly the same thing and i think that there is that the enlightenment that you can find is just like you know having a nice conversation and having a laugh and then um, and being around nice people and seeing things you haven't seen before. I really, and that's not cynical to me. That's, that's actually like very, I think that's like an optimistic view of enlightenment. Uh, then on, on that note, um, you know, because of what uh, Marie talks about in, in, in during the competition, what is truth? <laughs> what is truth? Truth is the truth. I think that it's, it's, I think that it's weird when, I mean, from really far away, things become blurry. So you, you know, it, it can seem kind of like the, the feeling or the intention becomes the, the, the truth. But I think everybody, when it comes down to it, knows that, you know, this is my left hand and this is my right hand. And I don't think it needs to be much more complicated than that. And, and I mean, obviously things are complicated and it's interesting and it's interesting that we live in a time where there's just so much information and it's, I think people are becoming confused and it's a, 
confusing time, but I think that my my personal belief is that it, it you know that the the truth is pretty usually generally easy to identify and um, and that people that say things like my truth it's just that just makes it more murky and somebody like you know truth social where you're only allowed to say positive things about Donald Trump obviously that's not the fucking truth and like the co-opting of the word truth to mean like perspective I think is just it I I, I don't subscribe to it. Well, uh, the film is Stanleyville, and it hits theaters in Toronto on May the 6th. Uh, it's a great film. I encourage all the listeners to go see it. Maximum McCabe-Locos, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Dan. All right, have a good one. Cheers. Bye. That was my conversation with filmmaker Max McCabe-Locos. His new film, Stanleyville, is out. Now, that does it for me and for Endeavors today. My thanks to Max McCabe-Locos. My thanks to Keone Waxman. I'll be doing a couple of things in the next little while, trying to get the Patreon, trying to create some sort of hub or, or website and um, trying to get a new editing platform and, and some new software. So that's what's coming up. As always, thanks for tuning in, and I will see you next time. Ciao for now.